Welcome to Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices by Thomas Brooks. We are starting at the beginning of the book for this reading. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Still Waters Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, are on the web at www.puritandownloads.com. Also, please consider, pray, and act upon the important truths found in the following quotation by Charles Spurgeon, quote, As the Apostle says to Timothy, so also he says to everyone, Give yourself to reading. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves that he has no brains of his own. You need to read. Renounce as much as you will all light literature, but study as much as possible sound theological works, especially the Puritanic writers and expositions of the Bible. The best way for you to spend your leisure is to be either reading or praying." Unquote. And now to SWRB's reading of Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, which we hope you find to be a great blessing, and which we pray draws you nearer to the Lord Jesus Christ, for he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by him. John 14, verse 6. Thomas Brooks, A Brief Biography If readers of Puritan literature were set the task of listing thirty of the mighties among Puritan preachers, the name of Thomas Brooks would certainly appear among them, though few would be inclined to include him among the first three. His name and his works are sufficiently esteemed to secure for him an enduring place in the hearts of knowledgeable Christians, and some few might even award him a topmost niche among the choicest spirits of the seventeenth century. His reputation as a writer of treatises for the heart has never been clouded. His literary style is always lively. Like many of his contemporaries, he drew his sermon illustrations from the scriptures themselves, from everyday life, and from ancient classical literature and history. The amalgam is invariably interesting and edifying. Brooks is a preacher and writer whose biography, had it been written by himself or by a contemporary, would have possessed no small measure of interest. Unfortunately, what can be gleaned of his life story is scanty in the extreme. Alexander B. Grossart, in the memoir printed in the Nichols reprint of Brooks' Works, 1866, spins it out to sixteen pages, but he had to search far and wide for elusive information, and the basic facts which he brings to light are few indeed. College and ecclesiastical records, all too brief, can be supplemented by an occasional personal reference in Brooks' own writings. And Grossart, to his considerable joy, discovered and printed the last will and testament of our Puritan. Then, too, Brooks' various treatises survive in their earliest editions and are dated. No portrait of him is known to exist. Of the man himself and his strong personality, a clear picture is readily formed in the reader's mind. Our author lives in his writings. Apart from these, he is a mere shadow. Born in 1608, place and county unknown, he matriculated as a pensioner at Emmanuel College, Cambridge, that nest of the Puritans, on the 7th July, 1625, the year of Charles I's ascension to the throne of England and Scotland. The term pensioner does not indicate poverty, and there is reason to believe that the youth was the son of well-to-do parents. 
In Emmanuel College, he would probably rub shoulders with such men as John Milton and the famed New England trio, Thomas Shepard, John Cotton, and Thomas Hooker. His love for and skill in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin was nurtured, if not inculcated, during his college days. After 1628, the veil falls again, and for twenty or more years nothing is known of our writer beyond the fact that, before he re-emerges from obscurity, he had become a preacher of the gospel. London seems to have been the sphere of his ministry. There is little doubt that he held strongly with the parliamentary cause during the stormy civil war, 1642-48, to and it is virtually certain that he acted as chaplain to parliamentary commanders, both on land and sea during this period. There is reason to think that he was on terms of some intimacy with Thomas Fairfax, the commander-in-chief of the Parliament's military forces. His horizons were greatly extended during these fateful years, for he lets fall the remark in one of his treatises that he had been abroad in other nations and countries. And again, I have been some years at sea, and through grace I can say that I would not exchange my sea experiences for England's riches. Some terrible storms I have been in, he adds. By the end of the Civil War, Parliament, or rather the new model army being victorious, Parliament and army fell apart. Brooks was preacher of the gospel at Thomas Apostles, London. He was accounted sufficiently outstanding as a man of God to preach before the House of Commons, the rump of the Long Parliament, in the same year, December 26. His sermon was afterwards published under the title, God's Delight in the Progress of the Upright, the text being Psalm 44, verse 18, Our heart is not turned back, neither have our steps declined from thy way. His second sermon before Parliament was preached on the 8th October, 1650, a Thanksgiving day for Cromwell's victory over the Scots at Dunbar on September 3rd. On this occasion the text was, significantly, Isaiah 10.6, which we forbear to quote. Two years later, Brooks transferred from Thomas Apostles to another London church, St. Margaret's, Fish Street Hill, not without much opposition from some members of his future congregation. Those who objected to his settlement complained that he had refused to administer the sacraments to certain folk whom he judged to be unworthy, an oblique testimony to Brooks' firmness of conscience. St. Bartholomew's gloomy day, 1662, found him among the ministers evicted from their livings and driven into nonconformity. But he did not leave London and apparently managed to reside and preach as occasion offered not far from St. Margaret's. He escaped imprisonment, was eminent among ministers who refused to flee in the year of the plague, 1665, and was at his post to comfort the afflicted during and after the great fire of 1666. A lengthy treatise entitled London's Lamentations, based upon Isaiah 42, verses 24 and 25, appears in volume 6 of Brooks' works, Nickel Series. It runs to 312 pages and is perhaps the most remarkable contemporary memorial of that calamitous event. It is described on its title page as a serious discourse concerning that late fiery dispensation that turned our once renowned city into a ruinous heap. Also the several lessons that are incumbent upon those whose houses have escaped the consuming flames. Little of a biographical nature remains to be added. 
the years 1652 to 1680, were occupied by preaching and writing, a succession of treatises appearing at frequent intervals, of which Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, 1652, was the first. In 1676, his wife, Martha, died. To her he bore the eloquent testimony, she was always best when she was most with God in a corner. She has many a whole day been pouring out her soul before God for the nation, for Zion, and the great concerns of her own soul, when them about her did judge it more expedient that she had been in her bed, by reason of some bodily infirmity that did hang upon her. But the divine pleasures that she took in her corner did drown the sense of pain. We may judge that much of the success of Brooke's ministry assuredly resulted from his wife's support of him in prayer. Let Puritan wives be given their due. Assuredly the price of some of them was above rubies. There seemed to have been no children of the marriage. After Martha's death, three more years of life remained to Thomas. In the course of them he contracted a second marriage. His dear and honored second wife was a certain Patience Cartwright, of whom he says that she made all relations to meet in one, by which we may judge that, despite her youthfulness, and perhaps because of it, she was not unworthy successor to Martha. Six months after making his will in March 1680, Brooks entered into the joy of his Lord, gathered like as a shock of corn ascendeth in his season. Brooks' works certainly follow him. Not only did he serve his own generation by the will of God, but all generations since have seen reason to call him blessed. His writings have built up in their most holy faith not a few of the Lord's stalwarts, besides the many who have made less impact on the church of God. An admixture of salt, in the apostolic sense, has given outlet to their savor. The first printed work which Spurgeon gave to the church, his sermons apart, was Smooth Stones Taken from Ancient Brooks, a compilation from Brooks' writings in the choosing of which his fiancée, Susanna Thompson, had collaborated. It may well be judged that something of the spiritual wealth of the heir of the Puritans, as Spurgeon is entitled in a recent biography, was derived from this quarter. Grossart, in an editorial proscript which prefaces volume 6 of Brooks' works, quotes Calamy as saying that our author was a very affecting preacher and useful to many. To this somber word of praise he adds his own weighty verdict. His slightest epistle is bread of life, his most fugitive sermon a full cup of living water, his one dominating aim to make dead hearts warm with the life of the gospel of him who is life, his supreme purpose to bring near the very truth of God. Hence his directness, his urgency, his yearning, his fervor, his fullness of Bible citation, his wistfulness, his intensity, his emotion, his desire to be useful to souls, to achieve the holy success of serving Christ, to win a sparkling crown to lay at his feet, breathes and burns from first to last. Few who know Brooks' writings will wish to quarrel with Grossart. Our author is one of the select circle whose praise is in all the churches of the saints or at least in those churches which place value upon legacies of abiding spiritual worth. John Milton is often quoted as saying in his Areopagitica that a good book is the precious lifeblood of a master spirit, embalmed and treasured up on purpose to a life beyond life. 
Better still can we say of Thomas Brooks that, if not a master spirit, he possessed, which is of much greater worth, the spirit of his master. The Epistle Dedicatory To his most dear and precious ones, the sons and daughters of the Most High God, over whom the Holy Ghost hath made him a watchman, beloved in our dearest Lord. Christ the Scripture, your own hearts and Satan's devices, are the four prime things that should be first and most studied and searched. If any cast off the study of these, they cannot be safe here, nor happy hereafter. It is my work as a Christian, but much more as I am a watchman, to do my best to discover the fullness of Christ, the emptiness of the creature, and the snares of the great deceiver, which I have endeavored to do in the following discourse, according to that measure of grace which I have received from the Lord. God once accepted a handful of meal for a sacrifice, Leviticus 2.2 2 and chapter 5 verse 12, and a handful of goat's hair for an oblation. I know that you have not so learned the Father as to despise a day of small things, Zechariah 4.10. Beloved, Satan being fallen from light to darkness, from felicity to misery, from heaven to hell, from an angel to a devil, is so full of malice and envy that he will leave no means unattempted whereby he may make all others eternally miserable with himself. He being shut out of heaven and shut up under the chains of darkness till the judgment of the great day, Jude 6, makes use of all his power and skill to bring all the sons of men into the same condition and condemnation with himself. Satan hath cast such sinful seed into our souls that now he can no sooner tempt but we are ready to assent. He can no sooner have a plot upon us but he makes a conquest of us. If he doth but show men a little of the beauty and finery of the world how ready are they to fall down and worship him. Whatever sin the heart of man is prone to that the devil will help forward. If David be proud of his people Satan will provoke him to number them that he may be yet prouder. 2 Samuel 24 If Peter be slavishly fearful, Satan will put him upon rebuking and denying of Christ to save his own skin. Matthew 16:22 and chapter 26, verses 69 through 75 If Ahab's prophets be given to flatter, the devil will straightway become a lying spirit in the mouths of four hundred of them, and they shall flatter Ahab to his ruin. 1 Kings 22 If Judas will be a traitor, Satan will quickly enter into his heart and make him sell his master for money, which some heathens would never have done. John 13, verse 2 If Ananias will lie for advantage, Satan will fill his heart that he may lie with a witness to the Holy Ghost. Acts 5, 3 Satan loves to sail with the wind and to suit men's temptations to their conditions and inclinations. If they be in prosperity, he will tempt them to deny God. Proverbs 30, verse 9. If they be in adversity, he will tempt them to distrust God. If their knowledge be weak, he will tempt them to have low thoughts of God. If their conscience be tender, he will tempt to scrupulosity. If large, to carnal security. If bold-spirited, he will tempt to presumption. If timorous, to desperation. If flexible, to inconstancy if stiff to impenitency. From the power 
malice, and skill of Satan, doth proceed all the soul-killing plots, devices, stratagems, and machinations that be in the world. Several devices he hath to draw souls to sin, and several plots he hath to keep souls from all holy and heavenly services, and several stratagems he hath to keep souls in a mourning, staggering, doubting, and questioning condition. He hath several devices to destroy the great and honorable, the wise and learned, the blind and ignorant, the rich and the poor, the real and the nominal saint. One while he will restrain from tempting, that we may think ourselves secure and neglect our watch. Another while he will seem to fly, that he may make us proud of the victory. One while he will fix men's eyes on other sins than their own, that he may puff them up. Another while he may fix their eyes more on others' graces than their own, that he may overwhelm them. A man may as well tell the stars and number the sands of the sea as reckon up all the devices of Satan. Yet those which are most considerable and by which he doth most mischief to the precious souls of men are in the following treatise discovered and the remedies against them prescribed. Beloved, I think it necessary to give you and the world a faithful account of the reasons moving me to appear in print in these days wherein we may say there was never more writing and yet never less practicing and they are these that follow reason one because satan hath a greater influence upon men and higher advantages over them having the wind and the hill as it were than they think he hath and the knowledge of his high advantage is the highway to disappoint him and to render the soul strong in resisting and happy in conquering Reason 2. Your importunity and the importunity of many other precious sons of Zion, Lamentations 4.2, hath, after much striving with God, my own heart and others, made a conquest of me and forced me to do that at last, which at first was not a little contrary to my inclination and resolution. Reason 3. The strange opposition that I met with from Satan in the study of this following discourse have put an edge upon my spirit, knowing that Satan strives mightily to keep those things from seeing the light that tend eminently to shake and break his kingdom of darkness and to lift up the kingdom and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ in the souls and lives of the children of men. A footnote. Pirates make the strongest and the hottest opposition against those vessels that are most richly laden. So does Satan that art pirate against those truths that have most of God, Christ, and heaven in them. End of footnote. Reason 4. Its exceeding usefulness to all sorts, ranks, and conditions of men in the world. Here you have salve for every sore, and a plaster for every wound, and a remedy against every disease, especially against those that tend most to the undoing of souls and the ruin of the state. Reason 5. I know not of any one or other that have writ of this subject. All that ever I have seen have only touched upon this string, which hath been no small provocation to me, to attempt to do something this way that others, that have better heads and hearts, may be the more stirred to improve their talents in a further discovery of Satan's devices, and in making known of such choice remedies as may enable the souls of men to triumph over all his plots and stratagems. Reason 6. I have many precious friends in several countries who are not a little desirous that my pen may reach them. Now my voice cannot. 
I had formerly been, by the help of the mighty God of Jacob, a weak instrument of good to them, and cannot but hope and believe that the Lord will also bless these labors to them, they being in part the fruit of their desires and prayers. Reason 7. Lastly, not knowing how soon my glass may be out, and how soon I may be cut off by a hand of death from all opportunities of doing further service for Christ or your souls in this world, I was willing to sow a little handful of spiritual seed among you, that so, when I put off this earthly tabernacle, my love to you and that dear remembrance of you which I have in my soul may strongly engage your minds and spirits to make this book your companion and under all external or internal changes to make use of this heavenly salve which I hope will, by the blessing of the Lord, be as effectual for the healing of all your wounds as their looking up to the brazen serpent was effectual to heal theirs that were bit and stung with fiery serpents. I shall leave this book with you as a legacy of my dearest love, desiring the Lord to make it a far greater and sweeter legacy than all those carnal legacies that are left by the high and mighty ones of the earth to their nearest and dearest relations. Beloved, I would not have affection carry my pen too much beyond my intention. Therefore, only give me leave to signify my desires for you and my desires to you, and I shall draw to a close. My desires for you are that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ that passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Ephesians 3, verses 16 through 19. And that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power, unto all patience and long suffering with joyfulness. Colossians 1, verses 10 and 11. And that ye do no evil. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 7. Also, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. Philippians 1.27 and chapter 4 verse 1 And that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness in the work of faith with power, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and ye in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 11 and 12 And that you may be eminent in sanctity, sanctity being Zion's glory. Psalm 93, 5 That your hearts may be kept upright, your judgment sound, and your lives unblameable. That as ye are now my joy, so in the day of Christ ye may be my crown, and that I may see my labors in your lives, that your conversation may not be earthly when the things you hear are heavenly, but that it may be as becomes the gospel. Philippians 1 verses 9 and 10 That as the fishes which live in the salt sea yet are fresh, so you, though you live in an uncharitable world, may yet be charitable and loving, that ye may, like the bee, suck honey out of every flower, 
that ye may shine in a sea of troubles as the pearl shines in the sky, though it grows in the sea, that in all your trials you may shine like the stone in Thresia, that neither burneth in the fire nor sinketh in the water, that ye may be like the heavens, excellent in substance and beautiful in appearance, that so you may meet me with joy in that day wherein Christ shall say to his Father, Lo, here am I, and the children that thou hast given me. Isaiah 8, verse 18 My desires to you are that you would make it your business to study Christ, his word, your own hearts, Satan's plots, and eternity more than ever, that ye would endeavor more to be inwardly sincere than outwardly glorious, to live than to have a name to live, that ye would labor with all your might to be thankful under mercies, faithful in your places, and humble under divine appearances, and fruitful under precious ordinances, that as your means and mercies are greater than others, so your account before God may not prove a worse than others, that ye would pray for me, who am not worthy to be named among the saints, that I may be a precious instrument in the hand of Christ to bring in many souls unto him and to build up those that are brought in in their most holy faith and that utterance may be given to me that I may make known all the will of God Ephesians 6.19 that I may be sincere, faithful, frequent, fervent and constant in the work of the Lord and that my labor may not be in vain in the Lord that my labors may be accepted in the Lord and his saints and I may daily see the travail of my soul but above all pray for me that I may more and more find the power and sweet of those things upon my own heart that I give out to you and others that my soul may be visited with strength from on high that I may live up fully and constantly to those truths that I hold forth to the world and that I may be both in life and doctrine a burning and a shining light that so, when the Lord Jesus shall appear, I may receive a crown of glory, which he shall give to me in that day, and not only to me, but to all that love his appearing. John 5.35 and 2 Timothy 1.8 For our close, remember this, that your life is short, your duties many, your assistance great, and your reward sure. Therefore faint not, hold on and hold up, in ways of well-doing, and heaven shall make amends for all. I shall now take leave of you, when my heart hath by my hand subscribed that I am your loving pastor under Christ, according to all pastoral affections and engagements in our dearest Lord, Thomas Brooks. A word to the reader. Dear friend, Solomon bids us buy the truth, Proverbs 23.23, but doth not tell us what it must cost, because we must get it though it be never so dear. We must love it both shining and scorching. Every parcel of truth is precious as the fillings of gold. We must either live with it or die for it. As Ruth said to Naomi, Whither thou goest I will go, and where thou lodgest I will lodge, and nothing but death shall part thee and me. Ruth 1 verses 16 and 17 So must gracious spirit say, Where truth goes I will go, and where truth lodges I will lodge, and nothing but death shall part me in truth. A man may lawfully sell his house, land, and jewels, but truth is a jewel that exceeds all price, and must not be sold. It is our heritage. 
Thy testimonies have I taken as an heritage forever. Psalm 119, verse 111. It is a legacy that our forefathers have bought with their bloods, which should make us willing to lay down anything and to lay out anything that we may with the wise merchant in the gospel, Matthew 13:45, purchase this precious pearl, which is more worth than heaven and earth, and which will make a man live happily, die comfortably, and reign eternally. And now if thou pleasest, read the work and receive this counsel from me. First, thou must know that every man cannot be excellent, that yet may be useful. An iron key may unlock the door of a golden treasure, yea, iron can do some things that gold cannot. Secondly, remember it is not hasty reading, but serious meditating upon holy and heavenly truths that make them prove sweet and profitable to the soul. It is not the bee's touching of the flower that gathers honey, but her abiding for a time upon the flower that draws out the sweet. It is not he that reads most, but he that meditates most, that will prove the choicest, sweetest, wisest, and strongest Christian. Thirdly, know that it is not the knowing, nor the talking, nor the reading man, but the doing man, that at last will be found the happiest man. If you know these things, blessed and happy are you if you do them. Not everyone that saith, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father that is in heaven. John 13:17 and Matthew 7:21. Judas called Christ, Lord, Lord, and yet betrayed him and is gone to his place. Ah, how many Judases have we in these days that kiss Christ and yet betray Christ that in their words profess him, but in their works deny him, that bow their knee to him, and yet in their hearts despise him, that call him Jesus, and yet will not obey him for their Lord. Reader, if it be not strong upon thy heart to practice what thou readest, to what end dost thou read? To increase thy own condemnation? Footnote The heathen philosopher Seneca liked not such as are always about to live, but never begin. End of footnote. If thy light and knowledge be not turned into practice, the more knowing man thou art, the more miserable man thou wilt be in the day of recompense. Thy light and knowledge will more torment thee than all the devils in hell. Thy knowledge will be that rod that will eternally lash thee and the scorpion that will forever bite thee and that worm that will everlastingly gnaw thee. Therefore read and labor to know that thou mayest do, or else thou art undone forever. Footnote. God loves, said Luther, the runner, not the questioner. End of footnote. When Demosthenes was asked, what was the first part of an orator, what the second, what the third? He answered, action. The same may I say. If any should ask me what is the first, the second, the third part of a Christian, I must answer, action. As that man that reads that he may know, and that labors to know that he may do, will have two heavens, a heaven of joy, peace and comfort on earth, and a heaven of glory and happiness after death. Fourthly, and lastly, if in thy reading thou wilt cast a serious eye upon the margin, thou wilt find many sweet and precious notes, that will oftentimes give light to the things thou readest, and pay thee for thy pains with much comfort and profit. 
so desiring that thou mayest find as much sweetness and advantage in reading this treatise as I have found by the overshadowings of heaven in the studying and writing of it. I recommend thee to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build thee up and to give thee an inheritance among them that are sanctified. Acts 20.32 And rest, reader, thy soul's servant in every office of the gospel. Thomas Brooks The Introduction of the Book 2 Corinthians 2.11 In the fifth verse the apostle shows that the incestuous person had, by his incest, saddened those precious souls that God would not have saddened. Souls that walk sinfully are Hazael's to the godly. 2 Corinthians 8 verses 12 through 15 and draw many sighs and tears from them. Jeremiah weeps in secret for Judah's sin, Jeremiah 9.1, and Paul cannot speak of the belly gods with dry eyes, Philippians 3, verses 18 and 19. And Lot's righteous soul was burdened, vexed, and racked by the filthy sodomites, 2 Peter 2, verses 7 and 8. Every sinful sodomite was a hazael to his eyes, a haydad rimen to his heart, Zechariah 12.11 Gracious souls used to mourn for other men's sins as well as their own and for their souls and sins who make a mock of sin and a jest of damning their own souls. Guilt or grief is all that gracious souls get by communion with vain souls. Psalm 119 verses 136 and 158 In the sixth verse he shows that the punishment that was inflicted upon the incestuous person was sufficient, and therefore they should not refuse to receive him who had repented and sorrowed for all his former faults and follies. It is not for the honor of Christ, the credit of the gospel, nor the good of souls, for professors to be like those bloody wretches that burnt some that recanted at the stake, saying that they would send them into another world whilst they were in a good mind. In the 7th, 8th, ninth, and 10th verses, the Apostle stirs up the church to forgive him, to comfort him and to confirm their love towards him, lest he should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow, Satan going about to mix the detestable Darnell, Matthew 13.25, of desperation, with the godly sorrow of a pure penitent heart. It was a sweet saying of Jerome, Let a man grieve for his sin, and then joy for his grief. That sorrow for sin that keeps the soul from looking towards the mercy seat and that keeps Christ and the soul asunder or that shall render the soul unfit for the communion of saints is a sinful sorrow. In the eleventh verse he lays down another reason to work them to show pity and mercy to the penitent sinner that was mourning and groaning under his sin and misery. That is, lest Satan should get an advantage of us for we are not ignorant of his devices a little for the opening words. Lest Satan should get an advantage of us, lest Satan overreach us. The word in the Greek signifies to have more than belongs to one. The comparison is taken from the greedy merchant that seeketh and taketh all opportunities to beguile and deceive others. Satan is that wily merchant that devoureth not widows' houses, but most men's souls. We are not ignorant of Satan's devices or plots, or stratagems. He is but a titular Christian that hath not personal experience of Satan's stratagems, his sets, 
and supposed stratagem, his artificially molded methods, his plots, darts, depths, whereby he outwitted our first parents and fits us a penny worse still, as he sees reason. The main observation that I shall draw from these words is this, that Satan hath his several devices to deceive, entangle, and undo the souls of men. I shall, one, prove the point, two, show you his several devices, three, show the remedies against his devices, four, show how it comes to pass that he hath so many several devices to deceive, entangle, and undo the souls of men, and five, lay down some propositions concerning Satan's devices. Chapter 1 The Proof of the Point Page 27 For the proof of the point, take these few scriptures. Ephesians 6 verse 11 Put on the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The Greek word that is here rendered wiles is a notable emphatical word. One, it signifies such snares as are laid behind one, such treacheries as come upon one's back at unawares. It notes the methods or waylayings of that old subtle serpent, who, like Dan's adder in the path, biteth the heels of passengers, and thereby transfuseth his venom to the head and heart. Genesis 49.17 The word signifies an ambushment or stratagem of war, whereby the enemy sets upon a man at unawares. 2. It signifies such snares as are set to catch one in one's road. A man walks in his road and thinks not of it. On the sudden he is catched by thieves and falls into a pit, etc. Number 3. It signifies such as are purposefully, artificially, and craftily set for the taking the prey at the greatest advantage that can be. The Greek signifies properly a waylaying, circumvention, or going about, as they do which seek after their prey. Julian, the apostate Roman emperor in the 4th century, by his craft, drew more from the faith than all his persecuting predecessors could do by their cruelty. So doth Satan more hurt in his sheepskin than by roaring like a lion. Take one scripture more for the proof of the point, and that is in 2 Timothy 2.26. And that they might recover themselves out of the snare of the devil, who are taken captive by him at his will. The Greek word that is here rendered recover themselves signifies to awaken themselves. The apostle alludeth to one that is asleep or drunk, who is to be awakened and restored to his senses, and the Greek word that is here rendered taken captive signifies to be taken alive. The word is properly a warlike word and signifies to be taken alive, as soldiers are taken alive in the wars, or as birds are taken alive and ensnared in the fowler's net. Satan hath snares for the wise and snares for the simple, snares for hypocrites and snares for the upright, snares for generous souls and snares for timorous souls, snares for the rich and snares for the poor, snares for the aged and snares for the youth. Happy are those souls that are not taken and held in the snares that he hath laid. Take one more proof and then I will proceed to the opening of the point, and that is Revelation 2.24. But I say unto you, and unto the rest of Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, 
and which have not known the depths of Satan as they speak. I will put upon you no other burden but to hold fast till I come. These poor souls called their opinions the depths of God when indeed they were the depths of Satan. You call your opinions depths and so they are but they are such depths as Satan hath brought out of hell. They are the whisperings and hissings of that serpent not the inspirations of God. Chapter 2 Satan's Devices to Draw the Soul to Sin Page 29 Now the second thing that I am to show you is his several devices and herein I shall first show you the several devices that he hath to draw the soul to sin. I shall instance in these twelve which may bespeak our most serious consideration. Device 1 To present the bait and hide the hook To present the golden cup and hide the poison To present the sweet the pleasure and the profit that may flow in upon the soul by yielding to sin and by hiding from the soul the wrath and misery that will certainly follow the committing of sin. By this device he took our first parents. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day that ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Genesis 3 verses 4 and 5 your eyes shall be opened and you shall be as gods. Here is the bait, the sweet, the pleasure, the profit. Oh, but he hides the hook, the shame, the wrath, and the loss that would certainly follow. Footnote So to reduce Dr. Roland Tyler, martyr, they promised him not only his pardon, but a bishopric. End of footnote there is an opening of the eyes of the mind to contemplation and joy and there is an opening of the eyes of the body to shame and confusion he promises them the former but intends the latter and so cheats them giving them an apple in exchange for a paradise as he deals by thousands nowadays Satan with ease puts fallacies upon us by his golden baits and then he leads us and leaves us in a fool's paradise he promises the soul honor, pleasure, profit, but pays the soul with the greatest contempt, shame, and loss that can be. By a golden bait he labored to catch Christ, Matthew 4, verses 8 and 9. He shows him the beauty and the bravery of a bewitching world, which doubtless would have taken many a carnal heart. But here the devil's fire fell upon wet tinder, and therefore took not. These tempting objects did not at all win upon his affections, nor dazzle his eyes, though many have eternally died of the wound of the eye, and fallen forever by this vile strumpet the world, who, by laying forth her two fair breasts of profit and pleasure, hath wounded their souls, and cast them down into utter perdition. Footnote This world at last shall be burnt for a witch, saith one. Many are miserable by loving hurtful things, but they are more miserable by having them. Augustine in Psalm 16 Men have need pray with Bernard, grant us, Lord, that we may so partake of temporal felicity that we may not lose eternal. End of footnote. She hath, by the glistening of her pomp and preferment, slain millions as the serpent Cytale, which when she cannot overtake the fleeing passengers, doth with her beautiful colors astonish and amaze them 
so that they have no power to pass away till she have stung them to death. Adversity hath slain her thousand, but prosperity her ten thousand. Remedy 1 First, keep at the greatest distance from sin and from playing with the golden bait that Satan holds forth to catch you. For this you have, Romans 12.9, Abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. When we meet with anything extremely evil and contrary to us, nature abhors it and retires as far as it can from it. The Greek word that is here rendered abhor is very significant. It signifies to hate it as hell itself, to hate it with horror. Stillwater's Revival Books is now located at PuritanDownloads.com. It's your worldwide online Reformation home for the very best in free and discounted classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, MP3s, and videos. For much more information on the Puritans and Reformers, including the best free and discounted classic and contemporary books, MP3s, digital downloads, and videos, please visit Stillwater's Revival Books at PuritanDownloads.com. Stillwater's Revival Books also publishes the Puritan Hard Drive, the most powerful and practical Christian study tool ever produced. All thanks and glory be to the mercy, grace, and love of the Lord Jesus Christ for this remarkable and wonderful new Christian study tool. The Puritan Hard Drive contains over 12,500 of the best Reformation books, MP3s, and videos ever gathered onto one portable Christian study tool. An extraordinary collection of Puritan, Protestant, Calvinistic, Presbyterian, Covenanter, and Reformed Baptist resources. It's fully upgradable and it's small enough to fit in your pocket. The Puritan hard drive combines an embedded database containing many millions of records with the most amazing and extraordinary custom Christian search and research software ever created. The Puritan hard drive has been produced to assist you in the fascinating and exhilarating spiritual, intellectual, familial, ecclesiastical, and societal adventure that is living the Christian life. It has been specifically designed so that you might more faithfully know, serve, and love the Lord Jesus Christ, as well as to help you to do all you can to bring glory to His great name. If you want to love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, then the Puritan hard drive is for you. Visit PuritanDownloads.com today for much more information on the Puritan hard drive and to take advantage of all the free and discounted Reformation and Puritan books, MP3s, and videos that we offer at Stillwater's Revival Books.